0: Welcome to Tisky Sour and welcome back to Aaron Bastani, fresh from his wedding. Aaron, congratulations. That's, I was getting a lot of congratulations to you in the comments on Wednesday. I want to I pass that on to you live on air.
1: Well, that's very kind, Michael. Did you have a good time? Did you have a nice time in Malta? Was,
0: it, was, it, was, it was really good, actually. I recommend Malta. If you're looking for somewhere sunny, kind of easy, it, it, was, it was a very good choice. Tonight, we have some brilliant stories for you, big ones. The JCBI decision not to vaccinate teens. Um, I say a brilliant story. There are lots of people quite annoyed about this, um, but it's definitely a big deal. We'll also talk about Gavin Williamson's series of really car crash interviews. It just keeps getting worse and worse with that guy. And we will close with a story about Andrew Neil, not, at least for now, returning to GB News. First story. The Joint Committee on Vaccinations and Immunisations have advised the UK government on the rollout of jabs since 1963, Yet it's only since the start of the COVID pandemic that the musings of the JCVI have led the nation's headlines. With schools going back across England this week, that focus had been on a long-awaited decision on vaccinating 12 to 15-year-olds. And the JCVI surprised most observers today when they said it's not going to happen, or at least it's not going to happen on the basis of their advice. The judgment is a little confusing. I'm going to go to the key section of it now. Um, So the JCVI wrote in their statement, Overall, the committee is of the opinion that the benefits from vaccination are marginally greater than the potential known harms, but acknowledges that there is considerable uncertainty regarding the magnitude of the potential harms. The margin of benefit based primarily on a health perspective is considered too small to support advice on a universal program of vaccination of otherwise healthy 12 to 15 year old children at this time as longer term data on potential adverse reactions accrue, greater certainty may allow for a reconsideration of the benefits and harms. Such data may not be available for several months." So as I said, that's a fairly complicated statement. The JCVI is saying that the benefits of vaccination for healthy teenagers, they think that that does outweigh the risks. However, it doesn't outweigh the risks to such a great degree that they are willing to advise that healthy 12 to 15-year-olds are given the vaccine. I suppose they they need there to be a bigger gap between the the benefits and the risks given the uncertainty which is currently involved, according to them. So what are those potential adverse effects um, of the COVID vaccines that the JCVI are worried about? Adam Finn is a member of the group, and he spoke to Radio 4 this afternoon.
2: The signal that we're aware of uh, with the both of the mRNA vaccines, which are the ones that we are able to use in this age group, uh, relates to the heart. So, uh, in a small number of uh, recipients of the vaccine, particularly males and particularly after the second dose, uh, you get an inflammation either of the heart muscle or of the membrane around the heart called pericardium. Um, Now, In the short term, uh, people who are affected in this way, although they're quite ill, they get better quite quickly. But what's uncertain is what the longer term consequences of that might turn out to be. Uh, And we've been hearing from colleagues in the United States who've been seeing uh, uh, numbers of these cases that they're Mm -hmm. seeing changes on scans which are making them concerned. And they want to see what happens to those changes over time to be confident that the uh, condition does resolve and doesn't leave any long-term consequences. Okay, when you say a
3: small number, what do you mean? How many in how many? Uh,
2: So the numbers that we've got at the moment, they're actually changing and they're quite uncertain, but somewhere between 3 and 17 cases per million doses is what we're seeing in this age group. So it's obviously a small number, but it has to be balanced against the relatively small number of healthy children who actually get sick with COVID sufficiently to end up in hospital or or even on rare occasions dying. And those numbers are are very similarly low. They're very small numbers as well. So if we immunized all 4 million or most of the 4 million healthy uh, teenagers in this age, we would be getting similar, but slightly lower numbers of myocarditis cases uh, to the number of severe COVID cases we'd be preventing.
0: It's important to note that JCVI are not advising that no 12 to 15 year olds take the vaccine. They had already suggested that certain teenagers with underlying conditions already um, take the vaccine and people who have family members with underlying conditions. They have today suggested that group is expanded. Um, So if their advice is followed, another 200,000 people will be entitled to the vaccine as we'll discuss in a moment. They also leave the door open for the government to overrule them. I'm joined by Anthony Costello. Anthony Costello is Professor of International Child Health and Director of the UCL Institute for Global Health and was a former Director at the World Health Organization. Anthony, welcome to the show. What do you make of this decision or this this advice from the JCBI?
4: You know, there's a group of people on Independent Sage and another group of people that came together this morning, with, which was coordinated by Dipti Gurdasani, with experts from the United States, from Israel, uh, from the country. And we actually disagree with the JCVI. I mean, you know, the JCVI are a set of experts. There's uh, 10 men and five women. They come from a range of backgrounds, virology, pediatrics, public health, uh, lay observers and their interpretation of the evidence is that the vaccine, they just about outlay the harms, but it's not enough. Uh, I, I just, you know, saw the statement that you read out. We disagree with that because if you look at the case numbers, well, if you actually go back to earlier this year, there was a paper published by the people advising JCVI where they looked at uh, the first year of the pandemic so from January to January basically so this is before the impacts of data and they basically showed that there were 6,000 hospitalizations in that time there were nearly 700 cases of what's called pediatric multi-system inflammatory syndrome and half of those ended up in intensive care unit with of problems kidney failure you know sepsis and all the rest of it shock. And then uh, there were 25 deaths of children with COVID and 61 deaths that were with COVID. In other words, they may have died from other complicating things, but they were positive for COVID at the time. Now, when I saw this figures, I thought, well, it's pretty straightforward. You know, on that basis, that's a lot of hospitalizations. Since that time, when we were looking at this back in June, we thought, well, we've been through Delta, there will have been a big surge. If we had the numbers updated, it would probably be double that. So then, of course, you know, the numbers have come down by June, and they consider it, and they hedge their bets. Now, things are rising. Uh, in the past month, there have been about nearly 1,100 admissions into hospital of children. We don't have any death figures uh, that we know, but based on the previous rates, you you know you would expect a handful of deaths to occur each each maybe, and that of course doesn't touch upon the numbers going into intensive care unit, and then the much bigger problem of long COVID, which I don't think they have addressed enough. Um, you know the figures vary. But the biggest study that's been done suggests that about one in seven children have symptoms lasting longer than three months. And some have it much longer than that. And uh, it's interesting because you've got to understand that this Delta is like a new pandemic. It's way more transmissible. And it also escapes the vaccine in terms of infecting you. Whether you like it or not, even if you're double vaccinated, you are at risk of being infected. You may not know, you may be asymptomatic, but you'll be carrying the virus. And uh, I know this because I was double vaccinated and at the end of June, I got COVID and I was completely on my back for three weeks, very fatigued, loss of smell. Then I felt a bit better for about three weeks. And then I've had other three weeks or four weeks of, of feeling completely crashed out. And I, you know, and I've got some symptoms signs in my legs and I've got loss of smell. And, and the reason I mentioned that, I'll stop in a minute so you can ask questions, but it's that this is a neurotropic virus, you know, it gets into your brain and that always should worry us. And there was a big study done in Oxford that published a few months back where, Before the whole pandemic started, they'd scanned a whole load of people with uh, CT MRI scans, actually. And then they followed them up and they compared ones who had been infected uh, with the virus against those that hadn't been. And it was quite a big study and very well done. And they showed that in people who had this loss of taste and smell, that there was thinning of the brain in the area where you would expect taste to be controlled. So that worries you. And there's a lot of other stuff coming up about possible long-term neurological problems for people. Older people may be uh, increasing the risk of dementia and the like. So this is really worrying. So I think you throw that into the mix. There's more than enough evidence for us there. And so we did, just to sum up, we did a, a, a British Medical Journal published review of the benefits and risks in adolescence. And uh, Dipti led on this it's basically unless you had a very low transmission rate you know if you if you were down to levels in the community of say 30 per hundred thousand cases or less then you could argue that the vaccine and the risks and harms were pretty much in balance and therefore you might decide not to do that but we're nowhere near that at the moment in young people it's above 400 you know so it's 10 twelve times more than that and we're not putting in place the mitigations you know our secretary for health thinks we've got it with the virus and we're not putting carbon dioxide monitors into schools we're not doing the thing that we should be doing to reduce risk so the message today and i I'll finish with the quote from the uh, male advisor to Israel Israel has got an even higher immunization rate than us, but they said, Don't think that's gonna, you know, there's still gonna be infection around. And he he said, Don't wait a day, vaccinate all your kids because it's, it's gonna protect them against the serious complications and against long COVID symptoms, but it's not gonna stop anyone ultimately getting infected. So that's how nationalisation of it, I think JCVI have have come down on the wrong side here. And, of course, they're out of sync with the United States that have vaccinated a million kids now, the European Union where rates are going up. So uh, I think we're out on a limb here. And, you know, I would argue experts don't always get it right. We, We made mistakes early on in the pandemic. I think this is a mistake, and a lot of people agree with me, but, you know, time will tell.
0: Do you have any insight into why they've come to this decision because I mean I'm not I'm not an expert on on the pros and cons of, of vaccines I, I imagine most of our audience won't but it it does seem confusing because you know as I, as I said in my intro the JCVI it's been around since 1963 it's not just some sort of quango invented by the conservative government to sort of justify their miserly policies when it comes to health or whatever is you know it seems to me an honest group of experts why have they come to a decision which you think is so wrong? I mean, obviously, I'm asking you to guess here, but how should we understand that the, the differences between their assessment and and the likes of yours and and indie sages and the Americans and well, the French, for example?
4: Yeah. To be fair, first of all, they would always want to be cautious about introducing a universal vaccine because you know you, normally, if you you know to decide to vaccinate for measles or Rubella that was introduced, you know, 30 years ago, uh, they took about two years to weigh up all the evidence. And this is being asked to move a bit quicker than that. So, in a sense, when you have to take those kind of decisions, you want to err on the side of caution. And as you've heard, there are, you know, a number of cases, about up to 15 to 20 per million cases of vaccination doses, can cause this inflammation of the heart. Now, in America, they've reviewed a lot of that and shown that all of them settle down. Most of them don't require more than one day of hospitalisation, and there have been no deaths. Whereas, actually, the inflammation of the heart from COVID is actually at a higher rate than that. So, I think that that maybe has swung them. You could argue that the dominant people tend to be tertiary cl- clinicians. And they've taken the view, oh, we're not seeing the cases in our hospitals. But of course, for long COVID, they're not going to see them. It will be seen in primary care. I mean, Anthony Harden, to be fair, the, the chair of that committee is a, is a GP. Uh, but I think he's largely working on this right now. I don't know. I think, you know, it's a small group of people. And apparently they took a vote and it was a majority decision. So I don't know, you know, was it 8-7? Was it. 10-5, you know, I don't know. I'm sure they'll release that information. And they have hitched their bits a bit. They said to the government, you want to get advice from other people. <laughs> and they may decide to change their mind. But I think the problem is that we've got children all going back to school next week. And the risk of infection are going to rise We're already at a high level. We've missed the opportunity. And as, as the Israelis say, don't have any regrets about this.
0: Let's talk about that hedging. Um, So they have said more evidence might emerge and they might change their mind. They've also said, if you want, you can override us. You you know, you can take into account broader things than we are than is within our remit. I want to get up the relevant um, section from their statement today. So they wrote, the JCVI is constituted with expertise to allow consideration of the health benefits and risks of vaccination. And it is not within its remit to incorporate in-depth considerations on wider societal impacts, including educational benefits the government may wish to seek further views on the wider societal and educational impacts from the chief medical officers of the four nations with representation from the JCVI in these subsequent discussions. Sajid Javid, um, the health secretary of course, has said he has already asked the chief medical officers to give him their advice and that a decision will be announced shortly. So Anthony, do you think he should just overrule them and should he do it as soon as possible and also are you expecting him to I mean the, the Tory ministers seem to have been speaking quite positively about <laughs> vaccinating kids so could it be that the JTVI give this advice but we forget about it because we're vaccinating kids in a in a month anyway
4: I was reading a few days ago that uh Johnson was very keen to vaccinate largely because a lot of the assumptions you know every night on the news you'll hear that 88 percent of the adult population have been vaccinated, and or seventy five percent, seventy seven percent have had double vaccination. But of course, that excludes the zero to eighteen year old, which is a lot of people. That's twelve million, and therefore, the the true numbers vaccinated, double vaccinated in our population as a whole is sixty two percent, and that's not enough to get to the herd immunity level, even if we can achieve it, it's going to be high. It's going to be well over 80 percent, most people think. So there are reasons why you think the government would want to do it to get, you know, more people vaccinated. And I happen to concur with them for once since pandemic. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some movement here, uh, especially if you start to see I don't know. You never. I mean, how can you predict what Sajid Javid would do or, or Boris? But I wouldn't be totally surprised if they found a way to overrule it and maybe talk with Chris Whitty and, and others and say, look, on balance, we're going to go ahead for X and Y reasons.
0: Finally, your your old organisation, the World Health Organisation, they've said that we shouldn't be vaccinating kids in in the the rich world. We should instead be donating those vaccines to countries where there are more people in more desperate need, because they you know, people in groups that are at a high risk um, of, of COVID and hospitalisation and death, etc. Are you not persuaded by that argument? And if not, what why do you think they're saying something that you? disagree I suppose you know I'm just here trying to make sense of why all these experts are disagreeing <laughs> yeah, yeah, all the no. time
4: yeah, no I mean look these are difficult decisions and um, but I do disagree I I don't believe the solution to vaccinating the world when we need probably approaching 20 billion doses look supposing this is a you know some people are talking about boosters, but some immunologists say we shouldn't be talking about boosters. We we should be talking about a three dose vaccine system, uh, and if that's the case, we're going to need twenty billion yeah, doses, yeah. and uh, we're nowhere near that. I mean, it's it's down at you know one to two percent of Africa have been vaccinated, and they're not getting now. You we need the finance, we need the technology transfer, and we desperately need a patent waiver. I mean, all these vaccines were developed with um, funding from taxpayers, from philanthropy. um, And yet you've got two major vaccine companies, Pfizer and Moderna, who won't have anything to do with WHO's technology transfer because they've increase their prices by a third in the past month and they think they're going to make a, a shed load of money out of cancer mm-hmm. and Ebola and HIV and things. And therefore they don't want to share the technology. You know, I'm old enough when I was at primary school, there was kids in the years above me who had gammy legs from polio and I was one of the 1st cohort to get the polio vaccine and when Jonas Salk, the American who invented the first polio vaccine, was asked why haven't you got a patent for this? And he said, can you patent the sun? You know, there was an absolute rule, and right in Oxford and Cambridge, right up until the 80s and 90s, always had a philosophy, you never issue, go for patents, because we're above that, we're doing research for the benefit of all. So we're in a right on this, and with the patent waiver, I mean, Biden was behind it, Macron was behind it, the World Trade Organization agreed it. Ngozi, and Ngozi, who's the chief, even Dietros supported it for the time being, though he plays his cards to try and keep on board with people because he's got so little money. And yet it was vetoed by Germany, by UK and Canada. And that was because they, you know, wanted to protect big pharma. And you know, it's gonna cost millions of lives. This and Gordon Brown said this is the greatest moral failure of our generation. And I think he's right. And and so, you know, we put a letter out into the FT a couple of days ago saying there needs to be a really big high level at the UN General Assembly this month and that the people need to get together and come up with a scheme to get 7 billion doses out by the end of the year and 7 more billion doses out by next summer so that we can really do this seriously. Because it's all in our interest to do this, because the other big worry is that if you have uh, levels of transmission whilst you're vaccinating people, it, it you know, from an evolutionary point of view, you're going to encourage variants. And we just don't know exactly where we're going to go with new variants. So you know, it is complicated. I think WHO got it wrong on this, actually, about just going for the donation route. Donations are not going to work. You know, Canada just said, oh, we'll give one to five million doses well that's a drop in the ocean and and today we have read in reuters that the british are destroying vaccines because they've almost reached their expiry date so we had the doses there to vaccinate you know 12 to 15 years but we haven't used them
0: anthony costello thank you so much for for joining us today real pleasure to have you on the show thanks much next story As Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson has had one of the most important and challenging jobs of anyone in government during this COVID pandemic. To help kids continue their education while remaining safe from an airborne virus would be challenging for even the most committed, the most intelligent government minister. Unfortunately for Britain's children, Gavin Williamson is neither of those things. On Thursday, he gave a car crash interview to the BBC on ventilation in schools. Let's take a look. I'm because just going the, uh, the first is time, the, I'm going
5: to try and get you to concentrate uh, just on the question, which is a room. I want you to talk about that room, that teacher. A room I'm with too. no windows and no ventilation. The wider issues are one thing. I want you to talk about that room and what happens next.
3: Well, um, you know, as you're well aware, you know... Uh, we're doing a whole set of measures and of course the vaccine program is the key reason why we can return okay, give me to three normality. in relation to that now, teacher who's worried of, about uh, that classroom as, as you'll appreciate you know um you know we're always looking at how we can improve the sort of security and the sort of uh, striking that sensible balance towards getting children back into school, but also continuing to deal with uh, um, with a whole sort of a uh, global pandemic. Okay, so uh, I'm, really, I'm really trying, Kevin Williamson. I'm uh, really
5: trying to make sure that we don't ad- end up talking over each other. But I'm very keen that you address that issue. Yeah, so so that's I have why, a teacher uh, with a classroom with no ventilation and no windows. So you you say you're looking at the wider issues, and and I'm trying to work out what happens in that circumstance. Are you, for example, as the education secretary, say, do you know what, for the time being, don't use that room, because you, you cannot make that room compliant with the principles you're talking about. So, for example, that room don't use it. Is that what you would advise? So
3: so, so that's not what I'm saying. And uh, that's why we've got a programme of CO2 monitors, because even though that room may not have windows that can open, uh, it doesn't mean to say that there's a problem in terms of ventilation in that room. That's why we've got a programme of CO2 monitors. Have the schools got those monitors yet? Uh, Sorry, I I didn't hear you there. Have the the
5: schools got those monitors uh, today?
3: so they are being rolled out so during this term. And of course, you know, it's a whole sort of, uh, you know, we have to take that balanced approach. We're having to look at, you know, what's the impact in terms of the vaccine programme suppressing, you know, whether it's the Delta variant or earlier variants.
0: It's like Gavin Williamson is someone who didn't do his homework and all he's practised before the interview is how to change the subject. So he's asked, Look, we all know this is an airborne virus. Ventilation is very important. The host had had a a teacher um, ask, say sort of in in my school, you can't open the windows. There's no ventilation. What am I supposed to do? Gavin Williams says, oh, well, there's a global pandemic. We have to strike a balance. And there's been a vaccination program. Your job is to make sure there is ventilation in all of these classrooms and if it's completely impossible to to ventilate a certain classroom to provide an alternative. And instead all he does is change the subject and he changes the subject to things which aren't his responsibility. Oh there's been a vaccination program, that's in the health department. Gavin Williamson, is there one thing that you have done that you can be proud of? Because it doesn't sound like it in that interview and it hasn't sounded like it in, in any interview you've done, I mean since you had the job. Also I mean to suggest, oh, what should they do if it's not ventilated? Well, we'll be sending them carbon dioxide monitors. That's good. But that doesn't actually ventilate a room. That just tells you if it's ventilated enough or not. So what if they get that carbon dioxide monitor and it shows that the the room doesn't have a healthy amount of air coming through it to keep everyone safe? And the, the icing on the cake in this situation is that While a carbon dioxide monitor is nowhere near sufficient because it doesn't solve the problem, it just tells you whether you have a problem or not, they haven't even got them out to schools yet. Amazon Prime, right? I'm not here to to advertise Amazon, but if I want to order something, I can get it delivered to my door within 24 hours. The education secretary has known that schools need these carbon dioxide monitors for months now. Could he not just get one of his civil servants to order them, Just, just deliver them? to all the schools in the country. It's quite easy to do, but he still hasn't managed it. Aaron Bastani, I want to bring you in on on Gavin Williamson in this interview. We've become used to it, haven't we? But it does seem phenomenal to me. You know, with with Gavin Williamson, we're, we're not normally talking about, oh, he's corrupt, he's got all these vested interests. It's just that he hasn't done anything. He doesn't do anything.
1: How bad is the schools thing is it going to get, do you think? Because, I mean, I, it was really interesting listening to, to your first guest, Anthony Costello, and he said, we are basically now looking at a different pandemic. This is basically, it's acting like a different virus. Um, that doesn't mean it's more, more deadly or anything like that, but in terms of strategies to, to, to deal with it, it they, they do need to be profoundly different. And if you actually look, and I don't mean to be sort of over the top here, I don't think we're going to have another lockdown, for instance. But if you look at the data coming out on the 1st of September a year ago, I think we had three deaths from the 31st of August. I think today we had 120 deaths. Yesterday we had 170 deaths. It's a similar case with hospital admissions. They're still very low given, you know, we've got, you know, society is normal, fantastic. But if you look at it compared to a year ago, they're far, far higher. They're far, far higher. Uh, And and I'm not suggesting that that means we're going to have a lockdown at Christmas like we did last year, because, of course, as he said, 62 percent of the whole population has been vaccinated, but not kids. And I just wonder, in the absence of these measures, Michael, with the Delta variant acting as it does, with the fact that vaccines aren't, you know, they're not 100 percent effective. If you expose teaching staff, support staff to children with this nonstop four months, very many of them, very high numbers of them will get sick. I just wonder, you know, I don't think a lockdown is possible, but here's a question for you. Do you think that before December we might see something where they say, that's it, sorry, we're going to have to shut the schools again for a a couple of weeks or a couple of months or indefinitely because, quite frankly, the infrastructure is not there?
0: I doubt it. I I, I doubt it, quite frankly. I mean, I I think the government didn't actually lie when they said we're going to close the schools last and open them first. I think, to, to some degree, they did prioritize schools, so I, I don't think we're going to not have a lockdown but close the schools. I think what's in question here really is, do we have the policies or the you know the modifications in place, for example, ventilation, that means that mm-hmm. by the time kids do get vaccinated, I think that will eventually happen as few as possible will have had the harms that come with uh, a covid infection without being vaccinated. So it so so for me the question here isn't really about are we going to have a winter catastrophe with bodies piling up in the hospitals again. No, I'm not, I'm not it's suggesting more that. it's more are we going to save x number of kids from the the long-term consequences of catching covid now. So so I, I feel like the you know but, but the not- two things we're weighing up are quite different to what they were last year. So I I don't think they will shut. I might be wrong, but that that would be my guess at this point in time.
1: But they're basically, like I say, you just look at the data in terms of what's happening with with COVID now to a year ago. We've obviously got similar weather conditions. We've got people behaving in similar ways. They're mostly outside. They're doing the same kinds of things. We don't have school. We don't have university. People aren't going into workplaces as often as they would be. People are indoors less. And the numbers really speak for themselves, Michael. Like I say, 120 people died in the last 28 days to today, 170 the day before a year ago, it was three. Look at admissions. Look at case numbers. So, as Anthony Costello says, that you know it does behave in profoundly different ways. And again, it does feel like another big experiment where you say, you know what, we're just going to let the Delta variant rip through schools. We're going to let it rip through the under 16 population. No, that doesn't mean you're going to get a high body count. Yes, most of them will be asymptomatic. Yes, most of them, you know, will have it and it will barely register because of how we know it behaves with, with younger people. But it doesn't seem a particularly wise way to administer education. I mean, I do think we could be in a situation, Michael, where you see whole schools just shut down. Yes, it might not be a national thing, but I think if you've got, I just don't understand if you're having multiple cases in, in every classroom every week. I don't really know how that functions as a system of education. Again, well, was, we haven't really, we 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 don't know, but it's not been done before.
0: Well, I suppose I mean uh, the difference between this year and last year. So this year we have a much more contagious. Virus, So the Delta variant is, is much more transmissible than the variant which was around last summer, which is why summer hasn't got rid of the virus in the same way that it did last year. So, yeah. so last year, I think with that virus, summer and the conditions of mainly being outside and schools being closed was enough to basically suppress the virus so that barely anyone got it. Now that's not the case. But what is the case now that wasn't the case last year is that it does seem that we will meet these herd immunity thresholds at various points in time. So it doesn't mean that the virus is going to completely go away, but it does mean that we will see peaks and troughs which aren't just based on restrictions. So if you look at what happened at the end of June, the beginning of July, that was the first time since the start of this pandemic that you saw a significant fall in COVID cases without any extra restrictions so what might well happen is that you, you know you'll get you'll get covid passed through a school and for a while that will be very disruptive because you have teachers going home um obviously most of them will be double vaccinated so they won't all get it but some probably will but ultimately you have a situation where a school has herd immunity right so at least all the teachers if you've been double vaccinated and you got covid it's very unlikely you're going to get it again as has been reported as is being shown in studies being vaccinated and having an infection very, very effective um, at stopping not just severe disease but infection altogether. So I think you probably will see sort of the, the development of local herd immunities, which which means that we could see these sort of peaks and troughs of cases in a way that's often difficult to explain, as it was at the end of end of June. So, so I don't think we are in this situation where we say, look at the numbers; it's just going to go exponentially up and up and no, up. No, nobody's saying exponentially. Nobody's saying. We'll, it's I mean, it will but, be but, exponentially. But, but, it just, it will just go you, up and down exponentially. But
1: but we do have we do have forty thousand ca- new cases today, Michael. Like that's with, you're making it sound as if there are no new cases. That's forty thousand cases today before yeah. you open schools, and you're basically saying, yeah, basically the entire population zero to sixteen, will all be with one another. I, I honestly don't see how you administer a system of edu- education like that. I, it, I, it feels like it will be running. I mean, and you're saying, well, of course they'll be vaccinated, and, and of course that's at odds with the story that we just covered. And I think you're right. I think young people will be vaccinated. But given the the time frame which that rolls out, and then of course you have to wait for three weeks per dose to kick in, I just I feel like this side of Christmas, I just don't see how it's going to work effectively. And I do think I do and look, we don't know how it plays out, but it does feel like it could be another one of those stories and people look back and go, Who the fuck thought that was a good idea? You know, and it does feel like there aren't really any contingencies being made as to as to how we might administer education slightly differently. You know, an extended half term four-day week, et cetera, et cetera. Not just the infrastructure in schools, which is, as you've already covered with Gavin Williamson, um,
0: it, it isn't really there. So I'm a bit worried, Michael. Hope I'm wrong. We'll have to see. As I say, I think more mitigation should be put in place because I, I don't want to see more kids get long COVID, but practically, they have changed the rules now. So the reason education was incredibly disrupted before summer was that anytime anyone got COVID, a bubble had to go home. Any a teacher was in contact with someone, they might have to self-isolate for 10 days. So so clearly a school couldn't function in those conditions and they barely were functioning by the end of last term. This time around, none of those are in place. So if you have a, a kid with COVID in class, they will spend 10 days off school. Potentially no one else will. If a teacher goes out to a pub on the weekend and gets pinged, they can still go to to to, to work on on Monday morning. Potentially these teachers will get COVID at some point, like probably most of us will at some point, they'll have 10 days off and then they'll probably not be off with COVID ever again. So so I, I don't think there is this, uh, I suppose, logistical challenge that there was before the summer, but we might get lots of kids getting long COVID, which isn't something we should, we should take particularly lightly. And let's go back to Gavin Williamson. I want to look at uh, a tweet from Stig Abel, who had... Um, interviewed him on the Times radio, obviously the same morning, and um, that he had that discussion with BBC Breakfast. So Stig Abel tweeted, I asked Gavin Williamson twice on Times radio, are schools now better ventilated and so safer in 2021 than they were last year? He twice talked about vaccination of adults. So the answer is presumably either no or don't know. Why has there not been any investment in ventilation? Why couldn't the education department send out laptops a year ago? Why is this department seemingly incapable of doing anything? Is it, is it that we just got unlucky with this education secretary? Is it that there is some sort of ideological opposition to doing these things? How, how do we explain this just, I mean, this, this catastrophic continuous failure that we are seeing to make sure kids can be safe in schools? I think some of it's on Williamson, but I don't,
1: think, I don't think all of it. I think if you look at healthcare systems in general are better set up to deal with crises than most of the other government departments generally, whether it's transport, housing, criminal justice, you know, they're kind of very slow and steady. The Ministry of Health, whatever country it's in, you know, it, it will be able to meet certain situations, generally not pandemics, of course, but you do get, for instance, in this country, excess deaths over winters, you can get new health conditions emerging all the time, whether it's HIV AIDS during the 1980s, whether it's mad cow disease in the 1990s, whether it was the SARS yeah, in the early 21st century. So I think, you know, the fact that healthcare systems are generally more adaptive to crises and shocks than other than other departments isn't a big surprise. But of course, the nature of COVID is that, yes, of course, they all had to adapt. So I think education, as elsewhere, has, has been particularly bad. And again, you know, we, we keep on returning to, well, why is that? It's because of the ideological kind of foundations of the people uh, in charge of these departments, but not just Gavin Williamson, the advisors, the civil servants, the opinion makers in civil society, etc. The idea that you have a Department of Education which responds decisively because of a pandemic is just completely anathema to neoliberal politics. And like I said, healthcare is a little bit different just by virtue of what it is, uh, but we see pretty much every other government department failing really, really, really badly. Of course, Uh, This one's a little bit more visible because Gavin Williamson is so deeply dislikable because he's so bad at interviews. It's quite funny seeing his kind of semi uncontrolled haircut. Is he going for a pseudo Boris Johnson look? Is he trying to get ahead of the curve when it comes to a new lockdown hairdo? We don't know. But I think, you know, this goes beyond just Gavin Williamson being a a painfully bad politician on television. Uh, And I think it does speak to a a broader failing of of Anglo-American politics. You know, we have not had the kind of political leadership on this issue that we need. And it's not just on COVID-19. It's climate change. (laughs) You know, we're having fights in this country, Michael, about whether or not we can shut down roads so we can build cycle lanes. Meanwhile, in China, they're building 600 mile an hour maglev, you know, train networks that they've got in Shenzhen. I think 20,000 taxis running on electricity, the entire city's bus network. So we have a profound problem in Anglo-American neoliberal politics in basically not being able to take on big problems. And I think the Department of Education shows that in microcosm.
0: Let's go to our final story. It's hard to imagine that GB News would have been able to launch earlier this year without Andrew Neal. He was the face of the channel, he fronted it, he was the chairperson. And it was the legitimacy he brought to the channel that made it possible for them to bring so many presenters, so many journalists on board. However, two weeks after the station began airing, Neil ran off to the south of France, exasperated at technical mishaps. He said at the time he would be back before the summer ends. Well, it's September and it looks like he's not comfortable coming back just yet. Multiple insiders expected Neil to be back on air on September the 6th, but the Times understands that this prospect is now out of the question. Neil, who also serves as GB News's chairman, has been in talks with management about his return without a resolution. GB News said last month that it was looking forward to welcoming back Neil in September, but the channel did not repeat this statement when approached for comment today. This all comes after Neil reportedly clashed with the channel's chief executive, Angelos Frangopoulos. Insiders said that Neil told Frangopoulos that the station had an overemphasis on political opinion over news. So he wanted it to be an alternative to the BBC and Sky. The director wanted this to be more of a Fox News style opinion channel. The Times also had this. It is understood that Neil regarded GB News' launch as shambolic after it was plagued by problems, including poorly lit set, misbehaving graphics, and repeated lost connections to remote guests. The GB News board is also said to have raised questions about GB News' performance. The channel has been averaging a daily audience of 20,000 in recent weeks, compared with 34,000 in its first five weeks. At the same time, Sky News and BBC News have made audience gains. Do you think Andrew Neal is going to come back to GB News? And do you think this whole thing has been a bit of a flop? A daily audience of twenty thousand is really bad. We get more than that for episodes of Tisky Sour, and we didn't have. I mean, how much money do they have in seed funding? It was like 60 million, wasn't it? You know, yeah. th- that's not much to show for it.
1: <laughs> but then you get this kind of they go, Well, we but we've got more subscribers on YouTube than you do. And you think, Oh my gosh. 60 million? Are you kidding me? You're getting me 16 million. I think we'd be if we had 60 million, we'd be bigger than Channel Four in like two years. Anyway, it's a huge amount of money, Michael. We'd certainly be bigger than LBC very quickly. I don't think he's coming back now. I think, and for two reasons: firstly, this has been a, a huge failure as a political project for him, and a, and, a, and a professional project. Um, just because the standard of the production has not been particularly high, I think he was delusional that it would ever be better than it is. It's very, very hard to start any kind of new organisation, let alone a media outlet. Um, And I think, I think he has a nice life. You know, I think he has a nice villa in the south of France. He's an older man. He has his work at The Spectator. I'm sure he'll still get, tragically enough, for the rest of us gigs at the BBC. He'll be invited on for his two bobs worth, uh, you know, on on Good Morning Britain. So do you really want to keep on embarrassing yourself in front of 20,000 people every day? Uh, and and kind of pissing all over any sort of professional legacy you had. I, I, I suspect you wouldn't. And I suspect that then they're not going to want him back. Maybe a more hands-off kind of approach. Maybe he'll be more of a guest sometimes. I mean, that would still be pretty good for them and for him. But in terms of anchoring a show, no, I don't think so. There was a great tweet earlier on today. And somebody, I think this is entirely correct, by the way, they said, you know, people refer to Andrew Neil as this pugilist, this incredible forensic interviewer. Part of that was because he had this huge team of researchers, you and I went on, you know, BBC this week, for instance, Michael, we saw it. Um, Huge number of people working for him because it's the BBC, doing the hard yards, doing the research, getting the guests, etc, etc. And GB News doesn't have that because it's not the BBC, and I think he's kind of surprised that it's not the BBC or it's not the Sunday Times where it was previously with, with, with Rupert Murdoch in the 80s. So I think he was kind of delusional about how, how, how well this could be as a, as a media product. I think it's fallen short. I think he'll stop. And I think his life is sufficiently nice anyway that he kind of will just want to relax. I mean, I might be wrong, but wanting to go back to London in the freezing cold in the winter for 20,000 people watching a day when you could stay in the south of France. I mean, I know what I would do if I were him.
0: All right, let's wrap it up there. Thanks for all of your comments. The audience are very engaged today. We will be back on Monday. Aaron Bastani, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Glad to have you back in the country. You've been watching Tiski Sour on Novara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to NovaraMedia.com support.